renewable energy can be an example of measures where we really need to be careful to avoid that one measure that helps us address, in this case, the climate crisis, doesn't exacerbate or worsen also the biodiversity crisis. Hello, uh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to the second episode of the Environmental Law Coffee Breaks uh, podcast, where we discuss the challenges and the implementation of climate policies in Europe. I am Emma, and uh, here with us uh, there is Laura. Um, she is Policy Officer on Biodiversity at the European Environmental Bureau and former member of Youth and Environment Europe. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. Today we will talk about the Repower EU plan with a special focus on the protection of nature and biodiversity in the context of renewable energy sources permitting processes. To give a little bit of background, um, the European Commission is taking the lead in this path for accelerating renewable energy permitting processes in in order to find uh, both an alternative to Russian fossil fuels and to meet the climate uh, targets. Could you give us a little bit of uh, a background on what is the Repower EU and what does it mean for renewable energy permitting? Repower EU was a policy package that the Commission adopted in May, very much in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that showed on a wholly new level how important and urgent it is for the EU to become less dependent on fossil fuels and to really speed up the renewable energy transition. And as a result of it, this whole big package of policy measures was adopted. And there are measures on energy saving, diversification of energy sources um, and, and other measures in there. But one key file that's interesting also from a biodiversity and wider sort of legal perspective is also a proposal specifically on speeding up permitting of renewable energy. So kind of in a bit more detail, this proposal is a proposal to further amend the Renewable Energy Directive, which is a cornerstone piece of legislation that deals with renewable energy in the EU, and to integrate some provisions on permitting into that proposal. As, as I understood, like, well, it's, it's clear, we all agree that uh, increasing the, the amount of renewable energy shares uh, in Europe is key for, for achieving the climate targets. There are other um, interests that are at stake and uh, need to be considered under, um, under a legal perspective when we decide to, to boost uh, uh, the permitting processes of renewable energy sources. What are these other interests at stake and, uh, and that also risk to be undermined uh, during the, these processes? I think as everyone sort of knows, we don't only just have a climate crisis, but we also have a huge biodiversity crisis. And we also don't have two separate crises, but we have very strongly interlinked crises. And therefore, whenever we try to address something for one crisis, we, we can't ignore the other one. Renewables and biodiversity aren't inherently at conflict. It's something that I think is sometimes pitched a bit like that, but that's not at all the case. But as with a lot of other infrastructure developments and things we put into the landscape, we need to be careful and we need to think about, well, where are we putting these wind turbines, also solar panels and, and so on? Where are we putting them and what impacts are they having upon key species, the habitats where we put them and so on? So one big question to consider is, 
the environmental impacts of these renewable energy um, developments. While, of course, keeping in mind that compared to a coal power plant or fossil fuel infrastructure and so on, the environmental impact much more broadly is, of course, much, much smaller than it is for, for much more harmful technologies. So overall, of course, renewables have are sort of the best thing we can do. But I think our aspiration should be to then also ensure that we put them in places where they don't harm species and habitats. And that's not just to say because, yes, we like certain species or so on, but because as I said at the beginning, the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis are so fundamentally interlinked that we can't solve one without solving the other. Putting renewables in places where we further contribute to ultimately the extinction of key species is going to further exacerbate the climate crisis and is also further exacerbating risks to our own health, to um, key ecosystem services that these species altogether provide, such as pollination for food security, flood prevention risks, for example, and, and other ways of mitigating uh, and, and adapting to, to the climate crisis. I heard that like another uh, interest that is at stake is, is public uh, participation. When, uh, when uh, you speed up certain permitting processes, you risk to undermine the right of the public to participate to to this, um, uh, for example, uh, impact assessments uh, and and these processes. Can you give us an overview on that? Yes, of course. So I think public participation for me, I like to think of it in sort of two elements. One, involving people helps to avoid problems later down the line. If you involve local communities, if you involve scientists um, local to the area, if you involve people who, who own land there and so on, all these people are, are helping you scrutinize your proposal. And therefore, you, whatever you're planning to do is likely to kind of just get more pairs of eyes looking at it and any potential problems you might have regarding other legislation and so on are likely to be picked up much, much earlier. So proper public participation leads to better planning because you have more people at the table who can contribute their expertise. So that's one aspect. But then there's a second aspect, which is a bit more wider that public participation and involving local communities is also, of course, key to ensuring that people are on board and accepting of whatever is happening. If you just want to put some whatever infrastructure development next to or near someone's community, I think it's only it makes perfect sense that you would talk to them and that you would involve them in, in the process. So that's a sort of wider um, core reason for why that's needed and that is also recognized in legislation i know why is done a lot of work on public participation also and the links to the Aarhus convention so just as a kind of reminder the Aarhus convention is this international law treaty that sets out key what we call environmental democracy rights and one key aspect of this is public participation so ensuring that people are able to contribute to these decision making processes that impact upon the environment and in this case of course also more widely there their communities. We, public participation is really crucial to avoid problems down, later down the line, but also to comply with international obligations and ensure communities are on board. And unfortunately, as part of this proposal that has come up under uh, Power EU, we are seeing a lot of proposals that would undermine public participation in very key ways. And that will then spark a lot of problems, as I kind of alluded to, but 
happy to go into more details on those as well. Now that we have seen that there are many interests uh, at stake when we talk about renewable energy sources, other than uh, the, the climate targets to be achieved, is there a possibility uh, for the EU to actually take all these interests uh, on board and to include into into a single piece of policy or legal action, in your opinion? Um, and uh, if, if there is a possibility, um, what would it be? Yes, definitely. Um, I think there's definitely an opportunity to combine these different interests and to put this in a policy piece. And I think the revision of the Renewable Energy Directive would be such an opportunity, would be a key opportunity to, to do so. There are different elements that are needed for that. Um, maybe one, just because we also haven't touched upon it yet, at the moment, there are a lot of problems with the permitting of renewable energy. There is often it takes a long time. Uh, it's it, it sometimes just yet yeah, takes extremely long. There is also uh, sometimes backlash from local communities nearby who don't want wind farms in their backyard and so on. I think this is something that we're all familiar with. However, it's really important to look at the reasons for that. And the reasons for that are very often lack of capacity in permitting authorities, simply people being extremely overworked, not having enough staff, not having enough financial resources, staff not having the adequate training to properly process these applications, these permitting applications. And of course, this leads to delays and huge backlogs. Then another reason I think is also that is important to remind ourselves is a lack of real political will to really move away from oil and gas. There's a lot of vested interest in oil and gas. So the kind of real momentum to properly move away from fossil fuels has, has been lacking. Perhaps this is changing a little bit in light of the global political situation. However, still, I think not to the extent that a lot of us would like to see. So that, I think, are two key factors that have held up renewables uptake in the past, combined perhaps with also not enough community involvement, not enough digitalization and so on. So a first pillar of a proper process to for what we like to call nature-friendly and people-centric renewable uptake is to address these problems and to cause up political will. That doesn't, I mean, that is maybe happening a little bit, but not enough. So increase political will, but also put more resources into the permitting authorities, provide proper training, build the capacity of people, ensure that there's enough money to have enough people to really process these, these, these permits. So that's one area. Sorry, that was already quite long. Then another area, I think, is to tackle impacts that renewables might have or can potentially have on biodiversity if they're not in the right place. So for this, there's not really much of a way around this, I think. If you want to avoid impacts, you first need to know where your impacts are. You need to understand what risks are there. How can we avoid them? What we say is sort of a key way to get around that is to do proper assessments and to have a very holistic approach to spatial planning. So essentially, to kind of take a sit back, look at a, a map, I mean, I'm simplifying now, look at a map, a big map, and to say, okay, we have what different areas do we have here? What existing land users do we have on those areas? And what can we put on those different plots of land if you want? And how will they impact upon each other? So we look at, okay, here we have a protected area. This protected area is protected for this particular bird. It migrates a lot, for example, or it has like these specific habits and it, it, it does these kind of things. So if we put something right next to it, that is maybe interfering with it. Or you would look at it and say, OK, here's a plot of land that we would like to restore because we're also going to have a nature restoration law coming soon. And we need to make sure that we think of all these things in, in holistic ways. And then, for example, you would look at, OK, here's an old industrial site. It's just sitting there. Nothing is happening. We don't expect there to be huge impact. So maybe let's try and focus our renewable energy on those sites. Or 
oh, we have a lot of motorways here. We have a lot of railway lines here. Let's put renewables next to those, on top of those, where also impacts are likely to be lower. So we would start with looking at, okay, what, where do we have, what land use do we have? How can we best use them? And where do we expect impacts to be lower? So then you would still need to kind of do a form of assessment and look at, okay, we expected that it would be low here, but let's check whether that's, that's actually the case. Involve the communities that are living there, that have the expertise on what is actually happening there. And then based on that, draw up a, a kind of a plan where you identify areas where renewables are like most likely to do to not do a lot of harm. You also need to take into account what kind of renewable projects you would want to put there. Of course, a windmill has a very different impact to solar panels and, and vice versa. Go through what is called a strategic environmental assessment. I know why you also have some more resources than that. But go go through that um, to identify uh, land areas that are that can be used very well for renewables. And then in a later stage, when you put your very specific projects there, you're most likely to not need to go through another round of assessment, which would then be called an environmental impact assessment. Because if you've done a proper strategic environmental assessment, so the higher level of the assessment, you will have already looked at the likely impacts and you will have already identified those areas where the impacts are likely to be lowest. But once you've done that sort of homework, you will then be able to much, much easier and much, much more quickly put renewables in different places where you know the impact will be lowest. In the meantime, there are certain areas that are very uh, sort of, um, that are kind of low hanging fruits for this. Rooftop solar, uh, solar on existing industrial areas and so on. And there are certain areas where you already know that the impact is likely to be extremely low. You may still need to do a screening for the environmental impact, but this is likely to be much, much quicker because you, you can expect that there will be very few impacts. And all of this, of course, the third pillar, while involving the local communities, involving the public and ensuring there are opportunities for, for, for people to have a say in this. And there's even more stuff on kind of ensuring people-centric renewables, so sort of renewable energy communities where people actually have ownership, for example, of the renewable energy uh, installations and where they really kind of have a cooperative, for example, and really come together and also are directly involved in the sort of governance setting up of renewables. I only have, I think, like one last question that uh, to, to frame it, because now now you, you talked about like an, a lot of we, we can do as, as also civil society and uh, um, would like to know more specifically as you, you're part of, um, you member, sorry, of uh, the European Environmental Bureau and uh, you're following this issue uh, first and uh, what, what will the next steps for for uh, European NGOs such as European Environmental Bureau to ensure that uh, like uh, the interest of nature and biodiversity as well as public participation will not be uh, undermined. At the moment, we're hoping that the worst can be avoided in the current um, co-decision process on this permitting proposal that came out as part of the Repower EU. The hope is not that high um, because the discussions aren't going very well. Just today, actually, there was a vote in the Energy Committee of the Parliament. Uh, I haven't had a chance to look at all the details yet, but I think a lot of not very positive and not very supportive uh, amendments were, were adopted and kind of fundamental risks that we see in the um, Repower EU permitting proposal, so undermining or completely scrapping environmental impact assessments or also assessments under the Birds and Habitats Directive, something called silent approval for permitting for, for certain types of renewable when you just don't hear anything back and then you just assume now it's fine. These kind of things or something else that's called um, something being of 
overriding public interest, but a lot of pretty harmful amendments to the Renewable Energy Directive seem likely to make it through to um, through Parliament, and then uh, the council discussions aren't aren't much better at the moment. I think in terms of what we're trying to do, I mean, we're trying to 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 raise this, to flag these concerns, to of course do sort of the kind of basic advocacy work that we do at EU level, so reaching out to MEPs and so on. But I think there also. The more people who, who do this, the more people who, who who speak out about these issues, the better. I think reaching out to to parliamentarians, for example, in the run up to the plenary vote on this issue, is something that we're trying to mobilise also our partners, our members, including YEE and and others and so on to do. So I think mobilising as much as we can in the run up to this decision making process, I think, is still one key issue. It's not just this room. Uh, Repower EU permitting proposal, but actually just last week there was another proposal with some similar measures proposed by the Commission that is likely to be voted in just the Council um, in a few in about ten days' time. So there's also, and then there wouldn't be even be any involvement of, of the Parliament. There are quite a few developments that look likely as if there's not so much scope for avoiding some of these impacts or some of these risks. But then I think it is also there is a big scope still for local communities um, to and, and people in the areas where renewables are developed to engage in processes as much as they can to try to find out where something is planned to engage with permitting processes and to engage in these processes and particularly in the strategic environment assessment processes and the, the EIA process, a sense of a spatial planning approach. And um, it tries to draw up these go-to areas where then there would be a focus of renewable energy. And that in itself is, is not a bad thing at all. The problem is then that it also proposes to completely avoid any EIAs in that. But that's another story. But I think also there's a lot of scope for local groups, youth groups, environmental groups, social groups, health groups, whatever, to get involved in the drawing up of these go-to areas and in the development of those plans in, in the process. Thanks a lot again for, for this insight. As, as a key takeaway, I, I will I will say that um, we, we strongly suggest to um, follow, first of all, what uh, the European Environmental Bureau is, is doing uh, on action right now. And uh, but also uh, we in, at Youth Environment Europe, we will um we, we will follow and, and read the, the the articles and handbooks we have we have written and to and to listen to the to the podcast of rethinking climate uh to start being involved uh and uh, first know the, the substance and what we're talking about what they're talking about at at you level i'm afraid that we are we have reached the conclusion of uh, this uh, coffee break um, so I thank Laura um, a lot for, for joining and I hope to, to continue the discussion in, at uh, another moment. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 